Hello, it's Brody. I love bringing mummification to you each week, and if you'd like to support me to keep doing that, you can make a once-off donation through the Acast supporter feature. There's no regular subscription, and your donation will help pay our music license, buy audio gear, and put fuel in my car so I can keep interviewing the amazing women who share their stories with us. There's a link in the show description and episode show notes. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Mummification. I'm your host, Brody Matner. This podcast is a space for women and parents to talk about how they're feeling. And sometimes they feel like swearing. So this episode may not be suitable for young ears. Hello, this is the last episode for the year. Uh, we will be back next year with some wonderful women sharing their stories, including Claire Bowditch and Dana Stevenson and many other amazing women. Thank you all so much for listening this year. It is such an honour to share these stories with you. And also a very special thank you to my husband, Leith, for learning how to edit so that he could help produce this podcast once I went back to paid work earlier this year. I love you. Thank you for your endless support. And a warning for today's episode, Liana shares her story of child loss. She is incredibly honest and generous with how she tells her story. So if you feel like that might be triggering for you, then it may be a good idea to skip this episode or come back to it at another time. We need to stop sharing horror stories and share our real stories. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Liana Quinn-Liven is a postnatal midwife and mum to three-and-a-half-year-old Hazel. Thank you for chatting with me tonight. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, If you were stuck on a desert island and you could take one meal, one drink and one personal item, what would they be? Uh, So funny, each time I listen to your podcast, I think to myself, God, how am I going to answer this? And this is what I totally (laughs) forgot to prepare for. Um, The meal. Would just have to be like plain old Cadbury dairy milk chocolate, which is so not a meal, but it is. I think it yeah. is. <laughs> it is. Um, what's next? A meal? A drink. Pepsi Max. Oh, I haven't had a Pepsi Max. I mean, I have, but I, that's <laughs> not been an answer. <laughs> yep, Pepsi Max. And what would I take? Can I take Hazel? Sure. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> 
I know that's weird. All the mums will be like, oh, my God, she's going to take her kid. I will stay at the other end of the resort. <laughs> she can go to the kids' club end. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You can be in the adults-only pool. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, now, can you tell me what your job as a postnatal midwife entails and how it is you came to do what you do? So my current role is essentially jumping in my car and visiting mums once they've um, gone home from the hospital after they've had their baby. Really, I just walk in and whatever the parents need is whatever I assist with. A lot of it is breastfeeding. A lot of it is the adjustment to parenting and that huge overwhelming realisation that it's actually bigger than what you could ever plan for. Um, There's been some interesting conversations about choosing the type of parent that you want to become, which I think is really fascinating that parents are thinking about that in the really early days. But a lot of it is just how are you, how's your bleeding, are you coping, are you getting sleep, just that basic 101 stuff of, yeah, just remember those early days when you brought your babies home from hospital. That's what I do. (laughs) And do you then do repeat visits? Yes, if the parents want it. We usually do about two or three visits per family. And then if the families want more visits, and some will sign up for one visit every week until their baby's six weeks old and then we refer them on. But um, otherwise, yeah, we see them once or twice after they've had their baby. And how did you come to do that, this work? Um, I guess, well, I've been a midwife, oh, I'm not even going to say how long, a long time. Um, And I started off working in the hospital, as everyone does, in birth suite, catching the babies, love the adrenaline, all that kind of stuff. And my career progressed. We can get back into that bit in a minute. But um, after having babies, I um, was breastfeeding up late one night and a friend who is now my boss sent me a message to say, hey, are you ready to come back to work and do you want to be on our team? So that's essentially how I got this job. But, um, yeah, the other journey of getting to this point, we'll head into that, I guess, in a bit. Or you want me to go there? <laughs> uh, well, I, I, I was going to say that um, on on the day that we're recording this, so today for us, but it won't be today for people when they're listening, um, it's International Pregnancy and Infant Loss Remembrance Day. Mm-hmm. Have I got that date right? That's right. Yes. Yep. So would you be comfortable sharing your personal story of loss? Yeah, for sure. And I guess that it's pretty intertwined with what I do, which is where I had a friend say to me, are you recording professionally or are you recording your personal story? Because they're so intertwined. And I guess um, it all starts when I became a midwife uh, back in 2006 Um My sister had a baby soon after I graduated and he sadly passed away soon after he was born. So it was a big slap introduction into midwifery and just the reality that not all babies live. That was a huge curveball for me and I really struggled with, I guess, really knowing whether or not I really actually wanted to be a midwife because that was that's part of it. It's really part of it. Weirdly or fascinatingly or however it works, um, I then started working in birth suite and really enjoyed that time. But then just felt this calling um, to work with families who lose babies. 
So I actually became a bereavement midwife. Um, I did that for nine years and essentially that role is caring for families when their baby has died in the um, instance of a stillbirth, so meeting with the families often before the baby is even born and helping them to figure out what comes next. Do they want to see and hold their baby? What is the norm in that kind of situation? But I guess being the person who gives them the what next and how to in a really fearful, awful, like just life-altering situation. We cared for families whose babies were palliative or for women who were having miscarriages as well. And I did that job for about nine years and part of that was to care for women in a pregnancy after a loss as well. So I um, worked in uh, the antenatal clinic as well and cared for women just in that next pregnancy that is so stressful and so you just cannot ever believe that you're going to have a baby after you've actually lost one. So then um, I guess I was single for a long time before I met my husband I met him in 2014 and we got married in 2015 and started trying for a baby pretty soon after. I have a pretty um, angry history of PCOS, so we knew that it wasn't necessarily going to be an easy journey to have a baby. So we started our IVF journey, um, which was, I think, much harder than what I could ever have imagined. I, I have cared for so many women who had done IVF but just never realised how full-on and how gut-wrenching and really awful it is. Um, we only ever had to do one egg collection, which is essentially one month cycling of injections. Um, it was amazing that we were blessed and, um, yeah, got a good amount of follicles that then turned into embryos. Um, our first transfer, which... That little embryo's nickname was Bruce, so it was never going to work because it was just terrible. <laughs> um, but, yes, that first embryo transfer didn't work and so we basically just jumped back in and, and did the next one, which actually ended up being, um, well, we thought that the embryo looked like a little dot, so that little embryo was named, nicknamed Dot. And that pregnancy progressed pretty well it stuck we got a positive pregnancy test um I had horrific morning sickness which was just awful but also weirdly reassuring because it meant everything was going well um and I think because of the work that I had done for so long I had stopped being a bereavement midwife at that stage when I knew that we wanted to have our own kids. I'd moved into doing some research and some different stuff. Um, but, yeah, I just had this feeling that something wasn't right. And I'd spoken to a few friends and a few doctors and they all kind of said, yes, but when you've only seen the worst things, you're going to think that the worst thing is going to happen. And so um, I was speaking to one of my friends who's a doctor at 16-ish weeks and he said why don't we just do your morphology scan early so I had my morphology scan done at 18 weeks and in that scan they actually discovered that the baby had short long bones which is essentially dwarfism or achondroplasia which is what they thought it was 
Um, that would have been great if that's what it was because we could have easily welcomed a little person into our world. However, as the scans went on and as more information was gathered and we had an amniocentesis come back that the result wasn't achondroplasia, which essentially meant what was it? And with genetics, it's really tricky because it's like looking for a needle in a haystack. And if you don't know what you're looking for, you really have to search the whole genetic scheme. So we were hoping and praying that it would just be something quite simple. But unfortunately, we had then a more formal scan at 18 weeks, which showed that things were worsening um, and that there was a lot of, um, I guess, signs in our little dot that um, we didn't know she was a she, but she um, wasn't growing well and had lots of complications. She essentially had lots of fluid in her body because her condition, which we later found out, was due, due to collagen. Um, that essentially meant that her bones weren't forming, so she had no lung capacity and her, her skull wasn't developing. So there was lots of <clears throat> lots of problems with her. The best case scenario we were given was that she might live for one hour, one day, if ventilated, but definitely not a life longer than a few days, if that, um, the most likely scenario would be that she would be stillborn. And that was a huge fear of mine because I had seen it and worked in it. And suddenly this, I don't know if it's a gut intuition because mums talk about gut intuition so often, suddenly that just felt so real because now I was in the place that I just was so nervous to be in. So <clears throat> we made the decision to end her pregnancy, which I've recently heard um, a beautiful way that it, that's described is that it's kind of like ending life support inside a uterus, which I think is actually a really sweet way to put it because the reality is it comes with a lot of judgment. There's a lot of opinion. A lot of people think that they know what they would do. But until you're actually in that situation and even in my job as a bereavement midwife, I had sat with families who had been in the scenario that we were then in receiving this news, trying to figure out how do we tell people, how do we balance religion and faith with these kinds of decisions. And I guess I had always thought that that would be the worst place that you could ever be, making these decisions for your children, and here I was doing that for mine. So <clears throat> it was kind of undoubtedly the best thing that we could do for her. And there's no right or wrong. It just is what you think you feel is the best thing at the time. But I think part of what I've always been really passionate about is not hiding away the fact that we have been through this because I know that I've seen a lot of families struggle with making this decision. And if maybe someone contacts me and says, I heard about your journey and I'm really struggling because we made the decision too and I have not been vocal about it and I want to talk to you about it, then that's amazing. So <clears throat> even though I've been raised with a strong Christian background, which was obviously really, really challenging as well, um, yeah, Dot was born on Valentine's Day at 24 weeks. 
Um, and I remember a friend saying to me, like, as a midwife, we always want to plan our births and know what's going to happen. And so she said to me, this could be your best birth. Like, go, go hard, get those fairy lights in there and light those candles and make it amazing. And this is, yeah, it really was my best birth. Um, Weirdly, it was the most beautiful and incredible moment when I met her. It was kind of like, um, I don't know, I just felt that huge rush of hormones and felt like like Sidmouth's pride land. I just wanted to hold her up and show her off and felt like I almost had to tone it down because I was just so in awe of her and she was so damn cute, which I wasn't expecting because we had had so many scans and met with so many healthcare professionals And there was a lot of talk about how wonky she was and all of the things that were wrong with her. So to see her and see how beautiful she was, it just blew my mind. It really blew my mind. And I take that from her birth and from her as like a little gift that there was so much beauty and so much love in a really hard and awful time and a lot of it felt really bizarre and uncanny and cruel because I was the bereavement midwife and now I was birthing my baby who was going to die and it was surreal like that's a lot of how it felt so to actually feel her birth and to hold her against me she was born alive which was so incredible um that was where the healing was for me in making the right decisions for her and birthing her. Just it was fucking amazing. It really was just incredible. And I know the circumstances of her birth are crazy, but I get what women feel when they birth their babies and just want to, you know, yeah, like hold them up like Simba because it's incredible. So, um, Yeah, we spent four days with her, which was quite amazing. We took her home. That's part of what I do in my job is support families to care for their little ones. And I knew and I guess I helped my husband realise too that we had to face this head on. Like there was no way that we could suppress any of this. We had to be with her and fall in love with her and realise that it hurts and feel every bit of the pain of it because I had witnessed families leave the hospital and pretend that nothing had happened and then months and years later still be carrying the hugest burden of loss and sadness. And both of us just think of her with such pride and love and, yeah, awe. She was so cute. She was so beautiful. So. Yeah, it was an incredible experience. I guess it's not something that's ever really assumed or spoken about when you're giving birth to a baby that has died. And I 
wonder if it's because I knew how to prepare. I knew what she would look like. There was not really any fear for me, whereas fear is a big part of it for a lot of other families. But, um, yeah, when I had her with me, we would kind of just hung out and um, I cared for her body and changed her clothes and just cuddled and kissed her. We had a few people come and meet her as well. And one of the things I did was I told her that as, as hard as it felt because I loved her so much, I wanted to create a sibling for her. And, again, this is where it's so intertwined that my job was to care for women in a pregnancy after loss. And now here I was at this next bit in my work but my home life. And interestingly enough, um, one of the little research projects that I did when I worked in the pregnancy after loss clinic was actually look at the data of when families choose to have another baby after they've lost their baby. Because that's the number one question and it's a really bizarre concept that you're there with your baby who has just died and already thinking when can we have another one. It's a yeah bizarre concept um, but it's really common. And as a bereavement midwife, it's something that I spoke to a lot of families very gently about. Um, so I knew and I felt that I had just witnessed having a baby and although it didn't go at all how I planned it to go, what I had done was create space in my life to welcome a baby and that space wasn't yet filled and I really madly, deeply wanted to fill that space now. I'd had a taste and I loved my baby and I wanted to, yeah, I, I just wanted a live baby that I could just be a mum to. And although I was a mum to Dot, it felt weird. It wasn't the same. So I told Dot that I wanted to create a sibling for her. And yeah, it was pretty powerful to be able to say those words to her because the research that I had done in the Pregnancy After Loss Clinic showed that families were pregnant within about three months of the time that their baby had died, which seems crazy. And a lot of healthcare professionals will say we don't necessarily have a time frame but wait six months. But ultimately and medically you really only need to wait for your period to return and then you're ready to have another baby when you're emotionally ready, I guess. We felt ready. We felt that we were going to be really judged if we decided to have a baby really soon. I know that a baby can't be replaced, but I did feel that if we got pregnant soon, there would be the assumption that we were just moving on and that we, I guess, I did hear someone say a comment that we got rid of one baby so that we could have another one, which was so hurtful. But we had to stick with what we knew, and that was that we wanted to have a baby. So I went for my checkup with my fertility specialist and said to him, I just I just got the ache now. And it was quite bizarre because he said, well, you know what you're doing in this. You're the expert. This is your area of expertise. And I said, I just 
feel like we're ready and my husband felt ready, if not even more so. He was ready than even me. And so we transferred another embryo and nine weeks after Dot had died, I was pregnant again, which is crazy to think. I think of it now and I think, gosh, that's crazy, but it just all felt right at the time. And in that time, um, yeah, I, I think one of the hardest parts was waiting for the results of Dot's investigations to come back confirming exactly what we thought was wrong with her. And a little interesting side part of the story is that um, I had caught the baby of the specialist um, who is the skeletal dysplasia specialist in all of Australasia. So when they rang and said, this midwife is experiencing this and has this baby, he said, oh, I know Liana, I've, she caught my baby. So that was pretty powerful because I felt like we had just the most incredible care and people looking up who were familiar looking after us. So he had made, um, obviously his baby, his wife was the one who had the baby. He, <laughs> he had a guess looking at ultrasounds of um, what Dot's condition may have been and got it right, which was absolutely amazing. So, yeah, the... I guess the long and the short of it was it it was a one-off random what they call de novo um, genetic mutation which went wrong. It was a one in a hundred, uh, one in eighty thousand chance that it would happen. But knowing that meant that it was chance and that it was just a fluke and that we could have the blessing to try again and have another baby, and that was really amazing yeah that was absolutely incredible so um I yeah that next pregnancy was terrifying it was absolutely um oh, I don't even know how to describe it just fearful full of fear I just I, I yeah it felt weird to be pregnant again even though it felt so right and Part of that pregnancy, which that little embryo I decided was going to stick and stay like a little cubby bear stuck to me. And so we nicknamed this one Cubby. And um, early in that pregnancy, I had four bleeds that where I had blood running down my leg. So there was many times where we just didn't think that this little one was going to stick. And I think that maybe if that blood loss hadn't been there, I might have thrown myself in a little bit more, but it took and really until we had a morphology scan come back that was clear that she was absolutely fine. Um, there was no concerns, everything, the bleeding had stopped. And, um, yeah, it was, yeah, I guess once we'd found out that she was fine, I remember feeling at about 28 weeks that maybe this was going to work and that I started to feel a really strong underlying sense of um, like certainty as opposed to uncertainty or that mudma gut thing in me was saying, I think this one's going to come home with you. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com/acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com/acast. So, um, yeah, her pregnancy was um <laughs> full of tears and full of um love for dot and remembering her in all of it as well i felt like i had 9 months of spare time up my sleeve to grieve for her but i also feel that because we got the news of her death almost 10 weeks before she was born um it was about 8 weeks before she was born we really had time to grieve her loss before she was born and i feel like the rest of our friends and family kind of only really caught up after she was born it was really bizarre we felt really ready to welcome another, another baby and it yeah that was a, had came with some mixed feelings from various people around us um but yeah we got to term and i was determined not to let fear depict my decisions and guide me through that pregnancy so i made decisions that i would make as a mum with my midwifery knowledge and i went into labor with her on her due date which was 191919 which i wished she would have been a day earlier because i wanted that to be her birthday but no yeah labor started on her birthday uh she was born the next day but i think to describe my labor something really fascinating which i found as a midwife and birth obsessed mums will love this as well i uh, did my midwifery training with the guru um, birth educator called ria dempsey who's quite well known in the birth world and during my pregnancy with cubby i rang her and said this is my scenario i really want to labor well with this birth i had the most incredible experience last time and i want to do that again and interestingly she said that if you get stuck in your labor it will be at about 5 cm dilated because that's the size that dot's head was and that's only as far dilated as you needed to get for her to be born and i remember thinking right i'm going to do everything that i can to prove you wrong and did all the work that i felt that i could do but obviously when you're grieving it's hard to put that to the side to birth but um labor started and 9 hours later i was still at 5 cm dilated i birthed um and labored with my friends who were midwives which is such a powerful experience i wish every woman could have that um and i remember coming out of the shower going okay it's not working i'd like an induction now because this baby is just not coming it didn't i can't i just can't make it hurt anymore or progress anymore So um then debriefing that later on that was quite interesting that what Ria said was actually very true. So 
Cubby's pregnancy, uh, Cubby's labour was pretty straightforward. I had an epidural and syntocin on and the whole works of what you don't necessarily want when um, you're hoping for everything to go naturally, but it was actually fine and beautiful. It was an incredible birth. Um, the interesting part <clears throat> of her labour I think where my head did get to override was once I was settled with my epidural, um, the concern with her was that after I had come out of the shower, they'd done an, another examination and her head wasn't even then in my pelvis. So there was a big concern that we would have to have a cesarean section, which whatever, I'm fine, just so long as she's safe, but not ideal. And so I said to everyone, right, all of, I had, three midwife friends, my husband um, in the room, I said, right, you all need to leave. I need to have the most epic cry. I need to listen to three particular songs and I need to be ready to meet this baby. And at that stage I was still five centimetres dilated and there was the talk of it's not working and not progressing. So I sent everyone out and they were all like, okay, this is a little bit woo-woo, but sure, head out the door. And my beautiful midwife, Maddie, hid in the corner pretending she wasn't there and I had a big cry and I listened to my music that I connected to Dot with. And about an hour later, people had come back in and Maddie, the midwife, said to me, what are you doing? And I was like, nothing. And she said, have you got pressure? And I was like, maybe. And she had a look and um, Cubby's hair was on view. So it was pretty amazing. I had a hairy baby. <laughs> um, yeah, we could all see her hair just there ready, waiting to be born. So there's so much power in the mind. And I know that as a midwife, but I just knew that that's what I needed to do. So there's so much beauty in her story as well. When she was born, she was lifted up onto my chest and I just wanted to hear her cry. And it was the most amazing feeling, but I remember thinking I don't feel Simba's pride. And I know as a midwife, birthing with hundreds of hundreds of women, that every birth is different and the way you feel and receive your babies is always different. And if you don't have an instant connection to your baby, that's okay because it's probably likely to grow because those hormones are bloody powerful. And, but gosh, she was cute and I loved her and she was here. And I just think that I couldn't connect to her because I was so relieved that she was alive and we did it. And definitely over the coming days and weeks, that connection grew fiercely for her but I think it's interesting as mums and as midwives that we should talk about the fact that we feel differently as our babies are born I just think it's quite bizarre that the baby that I felt that with was the baby that I knew wasn't going to live but um yeah we took her home about six hours after she was born I was just begging to get out of the hospital when you birth where you work it's quite bizarre <laughs> really weird thing and then you go up to the ward and you're in the ward and the people who come and see you know you and yeah it's really I just wanted to get home and and do my thing so it was quite amazing to have her at home and just 
fall in love with her and finally feel like I was a mum. And I think that I, yeah, I think mums cringe when they hear me say this, but I am that mum who never really struggled with the sleepless nights. I didn't really have sleepless nights. I loved literally every second of parenting her until she probably turned two and a half. Um, (laughs) I just couldn't get enough. And I think part of it is that I've always wanted to be a mum. Like people who have known me for a long time have always known that I wanted to have nine babies. Like that's always just, there was never enough. I could have just kept going and going and going. And um, yeah, it was just such a beautiful time with her. Um, sadly what was happening in the background though was that my marriage was falling apart and a lot of people may assume that's because of what we experienced with Dot but it's deeper than that and what I've learned um, after a marriage separation is that there's never one reason why a marriage breaks down there is so many reasons to it and I'm not going to go into it out of respect for my ex-husband. I listened to an amazing podcast about parenting with an ex-partner and how you can do it beautifully and respectfully and even little things such as I don't refer to him as my ex-husband, I refer to him as Hazel's dad because it's a real, it's a much kinder way to speak. So our marriage actually ended when Hazel was nine months old Um it's oh, some of the hardest weeks navigating how that was going to work. Um, it's interesting that reflecting back, thinking about it for this podcast, I don't really have a traumatic time, like memory of that. And I think it's because I was just so in cloud nine love with Hazel that that overshadowed the awfulness of the separation. The separation wasn't nasty, it was amicable, it was actually quite lovely, if you can even describe it that way. Um, And, yeah, Hazel's dad and I now parent, like we're shit-hot parents for her. We have time and space away, we have a break, we have respect for each other. There's a monumental amount of annoying that goes on when you're parenting with your ex-partner and it's infuriating at times but ultimately I choose to focus on his love for her and the incredible dad that he is and a lot of people are confused by that because they think that we should just get back together but isn't that nice of them (laughs) (laughs) no one really understands it I don't think unless you're a close friend who's really ridden the full journey with me but I see it as the best of both worlds. Hazel has never, ever known a bump in the road. She knows that her daddy lives in one suburb and her mum lives another. She sees her dad four or five times a week. She lives with her mum. So it's it's kind of like a beautiful relationship, this little dance that we have, which is actually really lovely. So I didn't get my nine babies. By the time Hazel was born, I was 40, 40 nearly 41. So that was pretty epic to have babies later in life as well. But, um, yeah, that's, I guess, the story of my little family. 
I need to change um, your introduction <laughs> so that it says that you are mum to Dot and three-and-a-half-year-old Hazel. Oh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Um, so I will I will do that, I think. Um, For sure. I, I, had, I had questions as you were talking and I was just – you speak so beautifully and so honestly. Do you do you find that people don't know how to talk to you about dot? Definitely, yeah, absolutely. I think the people who haven't known me as the bereavement midwife, um, because if you're friends with me and that's the job that I do we're pretty vulnerable kind of people. Um, I am very blessed to have many, many people in my world who are um, parents of loss um, that I've met and created a community for never expecting that I would be part of that community. So I know I can't imagine what it's like to lose a baby and you being the only person who's ever experience that so I feel that um she's very much part of my world still um there's certain people in my life who still struggle with the fact that we ended her pregnancy but I have learned that that is their journey and not mine I speak openly and with love of her she is my daughter she will always be my daughter her photos are on my fridge if I kind of feel fiercely for not only for dot but also representing the lost community that our babies need to be spoken of and even if you don't know what to say i would always encourage you to have a go curiosity is a beautiful thing vulnerability is what connects us i'm not going to be offended if you speak of her i know a lot of people feel that if they speak about a baby that has died, they're going to remind their parents and that's going to cause them sadness. There's not a day, many moments of many days that I don't think of her. And the beautiful part now is that Hazel will just throw her name or a concept of her into a sentence and the fact that she has a sister who's not here will always be part of her world we read books about her there's a lot of resources that I'm very blessed to know about and have so I don't really have many people in my world who don't know how to go there I guess I'm very blessed in that regard I'm very aware that I'm very blessed in that regard I suppose this question is um in both a personal and professional capacity um, what kinds of systems are in place to support bereaved parents? Are there professional systems in place? I mean, obviously um, there are people like yourself who are, are bereavement midwives who can help that and help guide people through their grief. Mm -hmm. But is there a bigger system in place to support or an or a long-term system to support people who have experienced loss? 
yes is ultimately the answer to that. There's amazing resources such as Red Nose, SANS, um, various different communities that are local. But when I say that there's various different communities that are local, that's sadly sometimes the reality is depending on your geographical location can depend on what type of support you have. Um, women who birth at the hospital that I work at, which is the biggest hospital in Australia, um, fortunately receive support from a bereavement midwife, but there are many hospitals where there is none and the support comes directly from the midwives who are on the shift and then the woman goes home to see her GP and hopefully has a semi-decent GP who then can link them in with various resources if they're aware of the resources. So the worst-case scenario is that women leave the hospital with nothing and then have no support. I think in bigger cities there's a lot more support and there's it's um, there's a lot of new research coming out now which supports peer-to-peer support for parents as opposed to psychological support. Peer support is well showing that it's the best form of support for families. And I guess that's where I was saying I'm very blessed to have a lot of peer support. So if you're isolated, peer support, I think, is definitely accessible if you're willing to sit facing a computer, but it's not very warm and friendly. Um, But, yeah, if you don't know what resources, most people, I assume, go home and just type in to Google and start with a Google search. There's a lot of stuff online, but with anything online, you've got to be careful with what you see. Um, A lot of it is people's stories and that can be quite traumatic and not ideal for parents, especially early days after their loss. The theme through your story is personal choice. Hmm. And the the kind of points of of personal choice that that stuck out to me were um, IVF and then your choice to... um, your decision to end Dot's pregnancy mm-hmm. and then your decision to have a, try again and then have Hazel. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that, you know, some people don't support those choices. Yeah. What would be your advice to a, a woman or a couple who are facing decisions like that and – how they can how they can turn inward and make those choices for themselves and perhaps block out other people's opinions if that's what they need to do. Mm. Oh, big one, Brody. Um it's <laughs> a bit rough for ten past nine at night, isn't it? <laughs> um I think it depends on the type of person you are. Um, I think about the meetings that I've sat in with families who are making that decision, the many phone calls that I've had with them as um, more ultrasounds and more tests results come back and further unfolding of knowledge about their baby's condition um, comes forth. Um, I think it depends so much on who you are as a person. There are people who wouldn't even discuss the option, whether that be for their own personal beliefs or religious beliefs. 
There are people who are very convinced that they don't want any suffering to come to their baby, and that's ultimately was our decision. Dot was not going to live any kind of life with any kind of joy. Um, there are families who I know when I was working as a bereavement midwife who were in the situation of making the decision to end their baby's life who were essentially advised not to tell anyone but to tell their family and friends that their baby was stillborn because then it was God's will in italics. Um, And I guess that's right for some people, but I could never live with that. That's too heavy and huge for me to carry. I've always been a pretty open person and a vulnerable person, so I guess it really depends on yeah, who you are and what your needs are. I think that the less people who are involved who aren't healthcare professionals, the better. And that's one thing that I've reflected upon because as the news unfolded for DOT and we were telling family and friends what was going on, we had opinions, very strong opinions of, what to do, what not to do. And I don't know how we could have done it any different, any differently because it meant leaving work and, like, logistical things had to be planned as well. Um, but that was pretty hurtful to have people's opinions of what we should do when they had really no idea. We'd given them very much a brief of what had actually happened And I guess the Roe versus Wade stuff has really brought it forward in the media again. People are talking about it and thinking about it. Um, Women's rights, right to live, all those kinds of things is very much prominent now again. Um, But it ultimately comes back, I believe, to the woman's choice. And I don't think that you can say or have an opinion on what, you think it should be unless you're sitting in a hospital room with a specialist and you're having the conversation about what you would do. It's too specific. It's too case by case. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you would like to talk about? I don't think so. I think I feel like I've done a lot of talking. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I. I had sort of questions or a, a couple of notes and um, and I just ignored all of them, which <laughs> I loved because you're, you speak so openly and so beautifully and to share your story I think is a real, it's a real gift and it's very generous. Thank you. You're welcome. I, f- I feel like... I've got a story to tell. Mm-hmm. You, you do. <laughs> Which I think, I mean, obviously I've stumbled across mummification various different ways and being a midwife, I love it. Being a mum who looks back at her own matrescence a little bit, um, oh, there's so much sadness for my first matrescence. I didn't feel like a mum. It's. I guess it wasn't really even a concept that I really dove delve into or really started listening to what my heart was telling me until Hazel was born. I think I kind of had two matrescences in a way. Um, 
And I think after listening to all of the mums who have spoken on your podcast and listening particularly to Kalai um, McDonald, just that single mum hearing her story and thinking, oh, this is so helpful for me. This is so powerful to listen to someone else's story. And I know we've been telling stories of birth for centuries and generations, but there's, yeah, I just feel like that maybe there's someone out there who my story brings or shows or comforts in some way. And, yeah, I guess that's why we're here. So thanks. No, thank you. It's Your story has been so eye-opening for me and I think um, often just in, in life in general I shy away from things that um, are unfamiliar to me for lack of a better term because I am worried that I will say the wrong thing or offend the person that I am speaking to. Mm-hmm. Um, so to have this conversation with you and have you speak so openly has has really it's it's been hugely eye-opening to me but also really lovely to just sit here as as face to face as we can on the internet <laughs> um and 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 just and just suck in your story it was just and i think it will be particularly beneficial for a lot of people who have experienced similar loss mm, or any kind of loss loss is loss they're not comparable they are their own unique story and i know that as parents who lose a baby at any gestation the loss the gestation doesn't determine the significance of the loss because we can always think of something or someone or a scenario that's worse than what we've been through and I'm sure for you who's lost her mum like it's you can always it's such a huge life-changing event and it it kind of just is what it is that's yeah the only way that I could really draw a conclusion to what's happened and and where I am today this is my life and it's certainly taken some hell-bent u-turns but I'm so blessed to have such a divine delicious three and a half year old who likes fart jokes who likes fart jokes oh my goodness oh man (laughs) apparently that's normal though it is in our house (laughs) (laughs) absolutely I was I was going to end by asking you what's something empowering that you would say to other mums, um, but perhaps what you just said is it, unless there is something else. I don't have anything else, so I'm happy to end on that. <laughs> Thank you so much, Liana. There are several links and resources in the show notes. And thank you all again for listening this year. I'm really looking forward to being back next year. This podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Mianjin people. I wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners. I would also like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging and elders of other communities who may be listening. Sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. 
Mummification is produced and hosted by me, Brodie Matner. Our beautiful music is composed by Ben Talbot Dunn. If you're enjoying the show, please rate, review and subscribe. You'll be notified when a new episode is released and it helps us reach new audiences, which in turn will hopefully help more women feel less alone. Thanks for listening. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.